listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. All right, here we go. God's word. Today, I'd like to talk about a real basket case, a real basket case. You might be one. You might need to be one. Let's open up to God's word, Acts chapter 9, as we continue verse by verse through the entire book of Acts. It's a good thing to preach. It's a good thing to study the word of God verse by verse, going through books. And that's how you get a comprehensive understanding about God, about yourself, about life. That's how an otherwise confusing world, an otherwise discouraging world, is absolutely transformed courtesy of God's word. You can navigate through the difficulties in life. God will provide clarity where there would otherwise be confusion courtesy of his word. Here we are in Acts chapter nine in the second part of verse 19. For some days he, this is the apostle Paul, right after his conversion on his way to Damascus. For some days he, Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. That's huge for Paul to be doing this immediately. It testifies to the transforming work of the risen, resurrected Jesus that he is now a transformed man because he has encountered the risen Jesus. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Paul is breathing out murderous threats against the Christians dragging them off to take them to Jerusalem to have them put into prison because he thought that the Christians were committing blasphemy by worshiping Jesus, by proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Now, an amazing turn of events. Now, Paul is preaching the gospel and preaching about the Jesus that he was persecuting. This is amazing, and you think you understand how significant it is. You don't really understand how huge this is. This is massive. You're gonna understand more by the time we're done. They say, isn't this that man? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So he who was plotting to have the Christians killed is now being plotted against by the Jews, the people that he came out from, are now plotting to kill him. So the tables have turned dramatically. Paul, who was the persecutor, is now being persecuted. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But... His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. What's Paul doing? He wants to participate in Christian fellowship. He knows that the idea of following Jesus, living for Jesus is not done 
on an island in isolation. He wants to be part of this community of worshipers who realize that Jesus is the anointed and the appointed, the chosen Messiah from God the Father. So Paul wants to have fellowship with those who are fulfilled Jews. These are Jewish believers who have acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures that remember the Jewish people adhered to. So Paul wants to do what you will automatically do spiritually, supernaturally. When you give your life to Christ, if it's real, you're going to want to associate with other believers. I remember before I was a believer in high school, I would see the other believers getting together for Bible studies in school. And they would hang out together and fellowship together. And it used to repulse me. And I used to make fun of them. I used to mock them. And I remember my calculus teacher, who was also the yearbook advisor, and I was one of the yearbook editors, and I was continually challenged in math. Math is not one of my strengths to this day. I still believe two plus two is six, all right? I was staying after for either help in calculus or to work on the yearbook, And I would listen to my calculus teacher talk to other students about Jesus. And I would pretend like I wasn't listening. I was there working on a math problem. Or I was thinking about something about the yearbook, working on a layout of a photograph or a column. But really what was happening is that God was using my difficulty with math to draw me to Jesus. And over a period of days, my calculus teacher, yearbook advisor, David Nace, who I'm still in touch with to this day, shared the gospel with me, the good news about Jesus, that it's either through works that you're saved or it's through faith as an act of grace, undeserved favor by God, that you become a Christian by giving your life to Christ. It can't be works, because if you could work your way into heaven, then Jesus died for nothing. And over a period of days, he shared the gospel with me. And then he said, you know what? I'm not going to talk with you anymore about Jesus. You need to make a decision. What? You mean you want me to to act on this stuff you're telling me about? You want me to make up my mind about Jesus? I have to have clarity about whether or not Jesus is going to be my Lord or whether he's going to not be my Lord. And over a period of three days, I tried to disprove it. And I became more and more conscious of my own sin in a way that I had never understood before. I realized that it was not possible for me to be good. And even if I was able to start with a clean slate from that moment forward, what about all the sins I had committed up to that point? On our small farmette in New Jersey, 300 Bickle Road in Washington, New Jersey. I know you want to Google it now, right? There in an upstairs bedroom, I gave my life to Christ, and I never again looked at those Christians in my high school the same way. Because God had begun to do a supernatural work within me, and instead of seeing them as enemies, I began to see them as part of the family. And if you're really born again, if God has really transformed your life, if you've really accepted Jesus as your savior, your master, for the forgiveness of your sins, you'll do what Paul did. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. He sought out the fellowship of the other believers. There was only one problem. Paul's reputation had preceded him, and the other believers now 
even though they had seen miraculous signs and wonders being done by the apostles, they had a hard time believing this miraculous sign and wonder that God could take this guy, Saul, and cause him to actually be forgiven and brought into the very same family of God that they were part of. This is what we're seeing happening here in verse 26 of Acts chapter nine. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, one of the marks of an apostle. Paul says it elsewhere, have I not seen the Lord how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now that's no small thing as we're going to see. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. The mother tongue of the Jewish people then was Aramaic, but there were Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews. And this is what Paul was doing. He disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Now, before we back this up a little bit and talk a little bit about this basket case, Saul, who became the apostle Paul, I want to touch a little bit about the fear of the Lord, which is not really understood today the way it really needs to be understood, okay? Many of us understand grace, undeserved favor that God gives us good things that we don't deserve. That's what grace is. Mercy is God withholding the bad things that we do deserve, So grace is God giving good things that we don't deserve, gifts primarily. In the case of salvation, the forgiveness of all your sins. You don't deserve that. On top of that, Ephesians chapter two says that God raised us up with Christ and gave us a position of authority seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You can look at that for yourself in Ephesians chapter two. That's grace, you don't deserve that, I don't deserve it. There's nothing that you did to earn that position, nothing that you did to earn your salvation. It's what Jesus did. You simply accept Jesus and you get undeserved favor, grace, the forgiveness of your sins and a position of authority. So if you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, nothing is above Christ. Everything is under your feet. And then mercy, which is the withholding of the punishment that we deserve, we get that when we give our lives to Christ. But often what's the case is that we do not understand the fear of God, which the Bible says keeps us from sinning, a respect for God. Oftentimes, we take our sin so lightly that we think there are no consequences for sin. There can be consequences for sin. There is consequence for sin. There can be the loss of the blessing that we would experience in the right here and the right now, this life right here. There can be the loss of rewards. First Corinthians chapter three talks about the judgment seat of Christ, that every believer, as opposed to the great white throne judgment, which is found in Revelation chapter 21, 
every believer at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter three, will be judged according to what they did once they came to know Christ, and it's a judgment of rewards. Not salvation, because you're already saved by faith as, an act of, as a matter of grace by giving your life to Jesus as your savior. But there is a judgment of rewards, and you can look at that for yourself, that some people, I know it's true in my life, will experience the loss of rewards. Because I know that I haven't been as faithful to God as I could have been, as I should have been, for one reason and one reason only, because I had temporary insanity, and you've had it too. That's why we sin. Sin is temporary insanity. It doesn't excuse the sin, but nobody who's in their right mind, thinking rightly about God, rightly about themselves in relationship to the scripture, will willingly, consciously, purposely sin. It's when we lose sight of who we are, where we're going, where we've come from, that we sin. And it's all attributed to a lack of reverence for God, a lack of fear of God. That's what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord. So what's happening in the church here is that they're overcome in a good way by the fear, the reverence of God, because they're recognizing the supernatural work of God, that if he could take this guy, the apostle Paul, you know, this guy Saul who became the apostle Paul and do such a dramatic, significant work in him, they're ooing and aahing over the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. Amazing work of the Holy Spirit in exalting Jesus and changing lives. And if you haven't noticed, that's what the whole gospel is about. It's about lives that are changed. You can't change yourself the way you need to be changed. I can't change you, I can't change myself. But I'm thankful that through Christ, God does change me. And through Christ, God does change you. And through Christ, God will change you if you will simply invite him to do what only he can do. I know you might be strong. I was looking at a picture of Frank Zane, who was three-time Mr. Olympia, and he was one of my favorite bodybuilders when I was a kid. Looked at a picture of him, now he's in his 70s. You'd never know that he lifted a weight in his life. And you know, there's a common destiny for us all. You might be a very strong person physically, might be very strong emotionally, might have a, a great intellect, but eventually all of those things are going to fail and the only thing that's going to be left is whether or not you depended upon Jesus as your strength, Jesus as your deliverer, Jesus as your rescuer, Jesus as your master, Jesus as your God. That's, that's where it's all coming. I'm trying to spare you years of futility. Physical training is of some value, Paul says. He doesn't poo-poo it. He doesn't say, hey, don't train. Listen, if you don't take care of your body now, you might incur significant health difficulties that otherwise could have been taken care of if you just ate a little bit better. We just exercised a little bit more. You know that Fitbit that you've been wanting to get? Might not be a bad idea. Living here in York might not be a bad idea to get a little bit more physically active because that'll give you more years of exercising your reverence for God and sharing the gospel with other people and leading people to the feet of Jesus and making the most of the only life you and I will have this side of eternity. So physical training is of some value, but godliness with contentment has value in this life and the life to come.
And I'm afraid that in the day and age in which we live, in the United States of America especially, we've lost sight of the fear of the Lord. There are some things that we do that we need some time to take a break from just jumping right in, getting back on the saddle and serving the Lord the way we could have been serving the Lord until we kind of fell off the wagon. What do I mean by that? Listen, I'm all for restoration. You should be too if you're a follower of Jesus. Grace and mercy are part of the gospel. But you know, there was a time even in my life where I needed to take a break from public ministry to work on some issues inside. And can I be honest with you for a second? Some sin issues inside of me. It's not important for you to be in ministry to people if you're not ministering to the Lord. Psalm 101 says, he whose walk is blameless will minister to me. That's not just David talking about people ministering to him. It's talking about a kind of a lifestyle whose primary endeavor is to minister before the Lord and minister to the Lord. And if your ambition is to minister to people without understanding the importance of holiness, you don't understand the fear of the Lord. Sometimes it's appropriate where we take a break from ministry to people because we really need to take a step back and ask, do I really reverence God? Have I, in the name of grace, in the name of mercy, am I actually belittling holiness? Here we see in the church this tremendous fear of God. It happened again. It's said specifically on the heels of the situation of Ananias and Sapphira where God judged two who are at least behaving as if they were believers but lying to the Holy Spirit. Whether they were believers or not, we'll know one day when we see the Lord. But the fact of the matter is that they were sinning significantly, lying to the Holy Spirit in the context of the church and God said, uh-uh, no, uh, no, 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 not so fast. It'd be a wonderful thing if in the body of Christ we rediscovered, or perhaps for many of us for the very first time, discovered what it means to have a reverence for God, a fear for God. It's not to be afraid of him like the boogeyman who's hiding underneath your bed, if any of you are Calvin and Hobbes fans. It's not that kind of a fear. It is a healthy, biblical respect for the holiness of God that causes us to think differently, to speak differently, to live differently. That's what the fear of God is. And here in the book of Acts, they're overcome with the fear of the Lord because they recognize the reputation of Saul before he became the apostle Paul. And it took some doing for them to embrace him as they would another follower of Jesus because his reputation was so dark and so dastardly. But you know, God had a way, as he does in all of our lives, had a way of tempering Saul as he was on his way, not just to Damascus, but beyond that, on his way to becoming this super apostle who ended up writing so much of the New Testament. And it's found, as we back up just a little bit earlier in verse 16 of Acts chapter nine, here's the umbrella statement that lays out the nature of what Paul is going to go through and what's going to cause the birthing of all of those New Testament books that we're such 
great beneficiaries of today. We appreciate so much today the writings of Paul that were birthed through all of these things. Look with me at Acts chapter nine, verse 16, where the Lord says, for I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, verses 24 through 33, we get a glimpse of some of the sufferings that Saul, who became Paul, went through on his way to ministering to Jesus and in the overflow, ministering to people. And you're one of those people today, almost 2,000 years after the fact. Saul needed to be tempered. And one of the things that God allows in our lives, even causes in our lives, is suffering to produce a righteous lifestyle and the fruit in our ministry that actually gives God great glory and has eternal significance in the lives of countless people. Look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 33. Paul recounting some of the suffering that he went through for the sake of Jesus. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's the death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, danger, Will Robinson, danger, 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 danger. We're seeing again and again a taste of some of the difficulties that Paul went through in fulfillment of Acts chapter nine, verse 16. God means what he says, says what he means, delivers what he promises. And one of the things that was promised to Paul is that he was gonna suffer greatly so that he would understand how his persecution of the church was grieving Jesus and how his lack of fear for Jesus was causing grief to Jesus and grief to Jesus' people. Verse 27, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, being speaking responsibly as an apostle, a church planter, a leader of leaders, a leader of elders. That's what an apostle was. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. There's a story we just read about that's recorded in Acts chapter nine. Now, you have to understand because if you blink, you miss it, and if you miss it, you don't understand the significance of what really took place in Saul's life as he was on his way to becoming the apostle Paul as God was shaping his life. Christianity is not like Mormonism. I know that Mormons call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints, but when you have theology where you believe that Jesus is the brother of Satan, clearly contradictory to Scripture, 
There are so many things that the Mormons believe that clearly violates the black and white teaching of the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's not another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's another testament that is blasphemous when it comes to the teachings of Jesus in the Old and the New Testament. Joseph Smith, you know, supposedly gold tablets coming down out of heaven and then going back up. A revelation given to one individual man who then conveys the story to other people. That's how Mormonism was founded. In a similar way, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, supposedly received his revelation individually from Allah and then disseminated that information. I want you to understand, I want you to understand how significant it is what Saul went through on his way to becoming Paul. I want you to understand how significant it is that God was at work in Paul's life. He was out there preaching the gospel. Read for yourself Galatians chapter one and Galatians chapter two. This is where you write down Galatians chapter one, Galatians chapter two, and you understand how God was at work in Paul's life, giving him the gospel by revelation. He says, I want you to understand that the gospel I received is not man's gospel. It was given to me by God. You would say, well, that's what Joseph Smith said. Well, that's what Muhammad said. Stay with me. Don't be so quick. We're living in a day and an age where people don't listen to each other very much anymore. Everybody has predecided what they want to believe and what they base their beliefs on. That's where it stops, okay? The similarity stops there because you would not have done things the way they were done if it originated out of man's mind and inclinations. You would not have done it this way. You would have gotten everybody into the same room, make sure they all had their story together, make sure they all had their act together, and then you would go out. Okay, we all have our talking points, let's go out. But what actually happened was Paul began preaching the gospel before he met with the other believers to confirm whether or not it was true. And then when they got together and compared notes, they said, oh, what you're sharing is what we're sharing. What I'm sharing is what you're sharing. You had Paul who received supernatural revelation. You're going to see when we continue in Acts chapter 10, you're going to see that Peter receives divine revelation. Cornelius receives divine revelation. And we have a guy over here being spoken to by Almighty God and being given the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and a guy over here not talking to the other people, receiving the gospel and getting divine revelation and when they compare notes, it's the same gospel about the same Jesus, about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and how about people just like you, people just like me can have all of their sins forgiven. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. It's a big thing for him to give up what he had to endure danger, 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 sleepless nights, an empty belly again and again and again. And the reason why he would do it is because he had a fear of the Lord, because Jesus had really appeared to him. He really had the gospel. His life was really a transformed life. Look with me at the book of Philippians in chapter three. Philippians chapter three. Here's another sampling for you to understand. The author of this book, just like 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul, the author of Philippians, the Apostle Paul. And here he is recounting what he left, that he didn't have to leave, that he would have been out of his mind to leave, humanly speaking. Unless God, the risen Jesus, was really the culprit for changing his life. 
Philippians chapter three, verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. By the way, he wrote this while he was imprisoned. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Talking about those who circumcise the body, the Jews. It's interesting that he would say this being a Pharisee, which he was, as you'll see. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. So this is a guy who was a Pharisee who got saved. Saul, who became Paul. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whenever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them human excrement. That's the word that's used there. Can you imagine a guy with the equivalent of a PhD in theology who was on the track of being the leader of the Jewish people, considering that to be nothing more than human excrement? Think of all the things that you've accomplished in your life compared to what you have and who you have in Jesus. Or let me say it this way, think of all the things you've accomplished in your life and all the things you have in your life up to this point in comparison if you don't yet have Jesus. I count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, if anybody had that Ability to boast, it would have been this Pharisee. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, the humility of Paul, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, mature, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame, their minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then the first verse of chapter four, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a huge thing. 
and don't you forget it. Paul became a basket case for Jesus and enduring the loss of all things. There is no way that he would have allowed that to happen. He had it made. He was on his way to being a fat cat and he gave it all up. He's not the founder of Christianity. He's not the owner of Christianity. He's one of the guys that God raised up while he was raising up other guys and other girls to preach the gospel. There is no religion on the face of the earth that came about that way. You would never create a religion by having people in this geographic region coming up with a story and people in another geographic region coming up with a story and holding your breath and hoping that it all came out the same way in the end. You need to understand the uniqueness of the Christian faith because it is not man's gospel. It is the power of God, the salvation for the Jew first and then the Gentile, which most of us are. And if God could take a guy like Saul, convert him and transform him into the apostle Paul and take a life that otherwise would have been characterized by comfort and convenience and make it into a life that was a real basket case where he began to suffer for Jesus. You better believe this gospel is true. You better believe that it's okay. Whether it's on social media, people want to criticize you, so what? Whether it's in your workplace, people want to criticize you for believing in Jesus, so what? You need to understand that Paul didn't derive in his own mind, I think I'm going to create a train wreck in my life, make something up, and destroy my future. He received revelation from Jesus Christ, having met him on the road to Damascus. Became a basket case for Jesus. That's good news for you and me. That's something you can take to the workplace this week, in your family this week, into the neighborhood this week, onto social media with humble courage. Be a witness for Jesus. You too can be a basket case. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.